with me to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12. Our reading begins at verse 22. The reading continues to verse 32. Let us pray again. Our God and Father, we thank you and praise you that your word continues to come to us, that we are ordered by such a grace that the word is not far from us. Lord, we thank you that we have Bibles in our homes for the private reading of your word, that we have the scriptures hidden in our heart so that when we are far from the book, we are yet with a lamp. And Lord, we thank you that in the public assemblies that you have ordered things by your grace for us, that the word is honored and read and preached. We pray tonight that we would recognize in the word the voice of our master and not a, a, a mere man, but indeed the Lord Jesus from the right hand of God who speaks to us here. And Father, we pray that we would draw near to him, believing what he has said, taking it to heart, building our life upon it, and hiding in him. We thank you that he is a defender and a guardian of his people. He will not let them be left in the open field to be devoured by wolves. We thank you that he steps forward and speaks for us, and so that we learn ourselves how to speak, how to think, so that we are ever blessed in him. Come, O Lord, now and bless us this way again. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 12, 22. This is God's word. Then a demon-oppressed man, who was blind and mute, was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, 
either in this age or in the age to come. God's word. Beloved, what would it take for someone to believe that Jesus is the ruler of all heaven and earth? What would it take to reveal to the soul of man that Jesus is almighty God? What would it take to convince someone that Jesus is worth their whole life, all their attention, all their devotion, that he is worth whatever, whatever remains of their calendar before they breathe their last? What would it take to convince them? Well, from tonight's passage, we learn it will take more than a miracle. It will take more than a miracle. The Lord Jesus heals a man who had been blind and mute. To be mute means the man could not speak. But in this case, the man could not speak because a demon had control of his tongue. He could not see for the same reason. A demon had control of his eyes. This becomes even more clear in Luke's account of this same event in Luke 11. The Lord Jesus cast the demon out, and the man begins speaking. He begins seeing. It's a great and gracious miracle, and Matthew tells us that all the people were amazed. That means they did not see power like this at work among them every day. Don't think that these ancients were gullible, naive people. They were amazed when they saw this. This was not an everyday occurrence. This was something special. Jesus is something special. The miracle reveals that much, but did it reveal more? For some, it did reveal more. According to verse 23, for some, this miracle makes them begin to think high and holy thoughts of Jesus. Can this be the son of David? King David lived a thousand years before Jesus was born. Why would they wonder if Jesus is the son of David? Because God Almighty had made a promise to King David that someday one of his sons, one of his offspring would be the Messiah, the Christ. And that son of David, no matter what later generation he would come from, That son of David would come and deliver God's people from all oppression, and he would rise, this son of David, rise to the throne over Israel and remain on that throne forever. High thoughts of Jesus indeed. You can read of this promise in 2 Samuel 7. It's called the Davidic covenant. Christ has fulfilled it in the new covenant. But the miracle did not reveal such things to all who were present. According to verse 24, among those who saw the miracle were some who used the miracle to harden in their rejection of Jesus as true Lord and God. Verse 24 says the Pharisees, whose highest thoughts were always reserved for the Pharisees, they accused Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul. The the amazing miracle did nothing good for the Pharisees. 
Don't think that people in the world need to see more miracles and they'll all become Christians. There's a word for that idea. It's often the word you see before the word bed. Bunk. People don't need to see more miracles. Now, who is this Beelzebul? Beelzebul is an old Semitic name the Jews gave for Satan. It means master of the house. So understand what verse 24 is saying. Some who witness this gracious miracle would not deny the miracle, but they did deny the source of Jesus' power. Even worse, they charged Jesus with using Satan's power to cast out demons. If true, if they were telling the truth, which is always a good question to ask yourself whenever you say something theologically, you certainly should ask yourself, am I telling the truth if you say something theological loud? You should certainly ask yourself, am I saying the truth if you're saying something theological in a pulpit? If what these Pharisees have just said is true, Jesus was using satanic magic to heal. And that was an offense all Jews knew to be worthy of death. Now, before we step further, consider what is happening here. This gracious miracle has painted the Pharisees into a corner. They can't deny that it took place. They are witnesses to it, just as all the other people who are amazed are witnesses to it. But they are fiercely committed to rejecting Jesus. But he's just performed a miracle. So just when you think they must, one, either deny the miracle right before their eyes, or two, fall down and call Jesus Lord, they surprise you and reach for a desperate solution. They attribute this mighty power of Jesus not to his divinity, but to his being a servant of the prince of darkness. Beloved, this is how low the sinful heart will stoop to avoid coming to Jesus Christ. The sinful heart, to retain its illusion of control, to retain its illusion of authority, to to retain its illusion of reasonableness, the sinful heart will desperately attribute to Christ's doctrine and his works the most worldly motives. The sinful heart will even say things like this. If Jesus were walking the earth today, he would not be opposed to the sexual freedoms our culture approves of. As if Jesus was not Lord, transcendent of time knowing all the conditions of man from all time when he gave his law. Or they might say, if Jesus were walking the earth today, he would approve of all the progressive religious ideas we ourselves approve of. I hope you don't approve of them. But this is what people do with Jesus. They reach for a desperate solution to deal with him. And it is always a solution that associates him more with the kingdom of darkness than with the true kingdom of God. Or they try this one. Jesus did not foresee. Oh, I've heard this one. Jesus did not foresee. He did not address the moral and theological complexities of a modern pluralistic world. 
Well, then who is he? The Jesus you're speaking of must not be the Son of God. All of these are kinds of things that are a desperate effort to demote Jesus to a mere man, actually worse. Verse 24 means something else. It is our first proof that it takes more than a miracle to reveal to the soul of sinful man that Jesus is God Almighty. It takes a visitation of divine grace. Now, in verse 25 and 26, our Lord speaks to dismantle the logic of the Pharisees. You need to stand right behind Jesus as he dismantles the logic of these wolves who would devour you and keep you away from him. Jesus speaks to dismantle their logic. He first starts with a large principle that everyone standing before him could give their consent to. Here it is. Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. Now, negatively stated, this is the principle that internal, internal division always leads to desolation. Positively stated, this is the principle that internal harmony leads to prosperity. Don't think wealth. Think the prosperity of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, which you know from Romans 14 is not eating and drinking, but it is peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now, those are the principles stated once negatively, a second time positively. Internal division leads to desolation. Internal harmony leads to prosperity. How do these principles apply, then, to what the Pharisees have said? It is their doctrine that Satan has possessed the people whom Jesus cured. They recognize that a demon has been exercised. Don't think the gym. I'm not spelling that word. Exorcism. So the doctrine of the Pharisees is that Satan has possessed the people whom Jesus has cured. It is also their doctrine that Satan helped Jesus to cure them. If this is true, then Satan has helped Jesus undo the very thing Satan had done previously, possess. Satan has aided Jesus to cast Satan out, if the Pharisees' doctrine is true. Such an obvious division within a house of Satan's possession, a man, is Satan opposing himself. How can there be any stability, then, in Satan's kingdom. The Lord Jesus puts you behind him and all these amazed people and goes toe-to-toe with these wolves to protect his little flock and make them love him more for his wisdom, his brilliance, his bravery, even his mercy, because he is speaking this way to save even those fools who need to hear this most, the Pharisees. Some of them will be saved, we learn, in the book of Acts. So let's go back here. If the Pharisees are right in their doctrine, Satan's kingdom must fall. And Satan is dumber even than a man. Because man knows enough that a house, a church, a city, a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. And that's the point of verse 26. 
Yes, we're already at verse 26. How can Satan be any trouble to anyone if he keeps punching himself in the face? Why should anyone even speak of Satan at all if he is as dumb as the Pharisees' doctrine says he is? Thus in verse 25 and verse 26, Jesus shows us how absurd the Pharisees' doctrine is. But why does Jesus take the time to show it? Ultimately, he does so to save them and to guard and defend the bystanders who might be drawn away by this worldly wisdom, not because these men are wise, these Pharisees, but because they are in church office. And the office often draws people. That's why it's such a heinous sin for one in church office to tell a lie, to teach false doctrine. But there are some elect among the Pharisees. There are some elect among the amazed. And they are being ministered to by our brave, clear, logic on fire Savior. Now we come to verse 27. Jesus says to the Pharisees, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. I don't, I'm tempted not to say this, but I, I, maybe against caution, I'm going to say it. This is the Lord turning the dagger. He's inserted it, now he's turning it. He's bringing their sons, which stand in the place of their disciples, into the conversation. The Pharisees were known to have their own disciples who called them fathers. And these disciples would occasionally cast out demons. So here Jesus says, if your doctrine on this is true, that a man who casts out devils must be in league with the devil, then your own sons, your disciples, have made a covenant with the devil too. Because they are casting out devils. But bring them here. Let them come. Bring forth your sons. Let them answer your doctrine because it must apply to them as well to me. Let them come as witnesses and they will judge your doctrine false. Your own sons will speak against your absurdities and expose your malevolent desire to reject the power of God in your midst. And understand, it is malevolent. The only reason they attribute this Beelzebul power to Jesus and not to their own sons is because it is Jesus they hate. It is Jesus' authority they reject. It is Jesus whom they do not want to bow the knee. Their sons bow to them. And that, that means they are not a problem. Now we come to verse 28, 29, and 30. In these three verses, Jesus declares that which the Pharisees could not bring themselves to declare. For it is just too devastating to the house in which they have been living for them to declare this. Hear it again. Verse 28. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. 
Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Verse 28. Let's go in turn. Verse 28. The only power opposed to the kingdom of Satan is the power of God. The only kingdom in opposition to the kingdom of Satan is the kingdom of God. It is by this power which Jesus cast out demons, which means the kingdom of God, a kingdom in deliberate, sustained, holy opposition to the kingdom of Satan, has come upon you. We cannot help but see in those final words of verse 28 not only a statement of reality, but also a challenge to the Jewish leaders. Do they want this kingdom to come upon them? They are the subjects of those final words of verse 28. Are they so unwilling that God should reign among them that they will cling to this, this desperate and absurd excuse? Do they not want the kingdom of God to come upon them? Do they not want to be brought into it and kept in it forever? Do they want to live outside of it just so that they can be free and autonomous? There's only one King, one ruler, we should call him, who wants to live like that, Satan himself. And he is selling that to everyone who will listen. Beloved, I want you to understand something about verse 28. Do not be be deceived. There is no third kingdom. There is not the kingdom of God and its rule of salvation and its truth and light and law and wisdom, and Savior. There's not the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan, and then a third kingdom that is safe but not attached to either God or Satan. There is no third kingdom. Notice what our Lord says in verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me. There's no fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh option. There's no neutral kingdom. Verse 29, Jesus now in verse 29 gives a picture of the ordered steps, the ordered steps of defeating the kingdom of an enemy. This is the art of war 101. First, the strong man of the opposing house must be bound. House, city, kingdom, the strong man must be bound, step one. Only then... Can the second step begin? The strong man's possessions are plundered. Our Lord's point here is that his casting out demons from those suffering in Israel is the work of the second step. Now, this is really wonderful, what our Lord's saying. His exorcisms are the plundering. The plundering is step two. The Lord is in the active process of taking to himself that which once belonged to Satan. 
He is plundering the souls of men. So if Jesus is on the second step, what does that mean about the first step? It has already been accomplished. Jesus already in the wilderness temptations has bound the strong man. He has immobilized Satan's rule. He has immobilized Satan's sway over the souls of men. The serpent is bound by a chain for a thousand years and cast into the pit. Beloved, understand something. You cannot come out. You cannot come out from under Satan's power by yourself. Somebody must jailbreak you. You cannot keep looking at your watch and saying, I'm 40, I'm 50, I'm 60. I'm going to come out of this satanic kingdom right in the last hour. That is a conceit that will doom you to hell. Because, beloved, you being a son and daughter of Adam, you being subject to the fall of man, you falling under the weight of sin, you were born in the devil's nursery. Christ must exercise. And it's not that word from the gym. Christ must cast Satan's authority out of your life for you to come out from under his kingdom. We are all dead in our sins and trespasses, bound to the power of the ruler of this age until Christ comes and jailbreaks us. He summons us out, washes us, puts his spirit upon us, gives us faith, and we begin following Jesus. Slowly, haltingly, weakly, poorly, enduringly, beautifully, blessedly, forever. This ministry of binding the strong man and plundering his house must come to every fallen child of Adam for salvation. When Paul tells Felix what his gospel ministry is, he says, I am declaring that through Jesus Christ, men are delivered from the power of Satan. That's in Acts chapter 21. You cannot walk out of the kingdom of Satan. You must be jailbroke. And there's only one kingdom that is so gracious, <laughs> that is so deliberate, so mighty, so merciful to come and break out of Satan's kingdom souls that deserve condemnation. And that is the kingdom of God, Jesus Christ. And verse 30, I've, I've mentioned briefly already. I won't say any more about it. Verse 31 and 32 now, this is where we, if we're familiar with our Bibles, we all start scratching our heads, and some of us don't stop until we are wearing toupees. Because these next few verses at the end of our text are heavy duty as far as difficulty is concerned. At least they appear to be, don't they? Let's hear them again, verse 31 and 32. 
the Lord Jesus continues to save the elect among the Pharisees. And warnings are part of his mercy, for they cut deep into the heart. Therefore I tell you, verse 31, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Now we should understand, as we work through these two verses briefly, that the Lord isn't telling you that you may have mistakenly said something that will keep you from ever being forgiven. Every pastor I've ever met has said this to his congregation. I repeat it to you. If you are concerned and worried with a godly fear that you may have blasphemed the Holy Spirit, that is evidence to you that you have not. (laughs) Godly fear that you have committed this sin is evidence itself that you have not committed this sin. But let's unpack a little bit. In our text, those two verses, the Lord says there are sins that may be pardoned, and he tells us what they are. And then he tells us that there are sins that cannot be pardoned, and he tells us what they are. That's the simple way that these two verses fall out. And they are repetitive in that regard. Each verse, 31 and 32, has a sin that is pardonable and a sin that is not. In verse 31, the sins that are pardonable are every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. In verse 32, the sins that are pardonable are anyone who has spoken against the Son of Man will be forgiven. The sin that is unpardonable in both verses, verse 31 is blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Verse 32, whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. So there it is. Let's take a moment on the sins that are pardonable. A perfect example, because Scripture interprets Scripture, of the sins that are pardonable, speaking against Jesus Christ, all kinds of sin and blasphemy, which are sins of utterance against God, those sins are pardonable for those who seek forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And you know who is a perfect class example of this? The Apostle Paul. Listen to what he says. 1 Timothy 1, verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Beloved, your blasphemy, your persecution and hatred of the church, even if it goes on 70 years, your insolent opposition to Jesus, even if it goes on for 50 years, can be forgiven. Such is the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Such is his unending zeal to show mercy. 
What then of these sins that cannot be pardoned? Well, I must read to you something I find very helpful from a theologian. Fawcett, Brown, and James. To blaspheme Christ in the former condition, when even the apostles stumbled at many things, left them still open to conviction on fuller light. But to blaspheme him in the latter condition would be to hate the light the clearer it became and resolutely to shut it out, which of course precludes salvation. The Pharisees had not as yet done this, but in charging Jesus with being in league with hell, they were displaying beforehand a malignant determination to shut their eyes to all evidence and bordering upon the unpardonable sin. The sin that cannot be forgiven is to have such a clear testimony of the power of God, which is the ministry of the Spirit of God, to have such a clear testimony of the power of God and to reject it and attribute it to the power of the devil. That is unpardonable. It's to have such a great revelation where you know that it is power from God. And you rebelliously, malignantly, malevolently insist on saying to others that it is the power of Satan. Why would somebody do such a thing? To exalt the kingdom of Satan. To draw others into it. Beloved, the final point I want to make tonight from our text is really the main point that comes under the title of the message. A house divided against itself cannot stand. You and I cannot experience and keep our salvation unless we are jailbroke by a more mighty power, a greater master, one who can easily bind the strong man and plunder us out of his house. It's the only way that you have come to know God. Tell your story truthfully. <laughs> you have been jailbroke. You deserve to go to the gallows, and the Lord of the house came and defeated the strong man and took you out. This is written in our scriptures, and even if our gospel is veiled, Paul says, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You see, a man is not ruled by himself. He is ruled by the one he serves. He is ruled by the master of his house. The master of his house is either the Lord Jesus Christ or the God of this world, Satan. A man does not have two masters. And the sobering news of Scripture is that we are all born into this world as children of the devil, 1 John 3.10, because we are conceived in sin, Psalm 51, and we are dead in our trespasses, Ephesians 2. Because of original sin, we are born in the devil's nursery. We are not, in a sense, trapped by accident in the devil's nursery. We have been turned over to the devil under the judgment and curse of God upon our race so that we might 
know our desperate condition. We are not the master of ourselves. We are the ruled, not the rulers. And the only way to be liberated is by a stronger ruler and Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Son of Mary, Jesus born in the manger, Jesus crucified in the cross, Jesus raised on the third day, Jesus ascended to heaven at the right hand of God. Jesus alone is that stronger ruler, that greater master. All others are ruled by the devil, but those who are ruled by Christ. Praise him. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. Bless it to our bodies. Bless it to our souls. Deliver us, if any of us here in this room are yet, even now, in the strong man's house, needing to be jailbroke. Lord Jesus, come and deliver them, we pray. For the praise, honor, and glory of your name, and for their great joy, their great refreshment in his kingdom. Father, we thank you that we who were once dead in our sins have been delivered from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved Son. We pray that we would remember that this is our story. This is our biography. This is what has happened to us. Lord, we pray that we would always boast in the one who has come and plundered us and taken possession of us by a holy spirit, not a demonic spirit. We praise you and thank you for Jesus, your beloved and only begotten. In his name we pray, amen.